Morning, everybody. Must be the sunshine that got to our heads. Thanks for tuning into the medical edition of The Lowdown. As you may have heard when we started talking about where we were going to go as things progressed, we knew we wanted to have one day a week where we could set aside to give you updates from the medical community was what was happening in their world in regard to the virus, what was basically happening on the ground in Kodiak from their point of view. Uh, but to make it mostly a listener question show, thanks to the cooperation we've got from the state, from Providence, from Canna, and from the Community Health Center, they've all agreed to try and uh, make some personnel available to us and come in and do this every Wednesday until circumstances change and it becomes unnecessary or, or impossible to do. So thanks to them for coming in and thanks to the organizations for making it happen. Um, now it essentially is going to be up to you folks out there listening for to help it keep going if it's going to be a listener generated question show um, you can always email us to lowdown at kmxt.org or during the course of the show call 486-3181 and we'll try and get your question answered today if there, we don't have an answer to your question um, we'll try and get you the, an answer before next wednesday's show or we'll try and have it answered on next week's show. So line up the questions, and we'll try and get to as many of them as we can. Um, in the studio with me today, I have Dr. Smith from the Providence Kodiak Island Medical Center Emergency Room, Chief of Staff. Um, Elite Dr. Elise Pletnikoff, who's on the line from the Kodiak Area Native Association. Elsa DeHart from the Public Health Center. And Gina Bishop, the CEO of Providence. Thank you all for coming in. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are we doing? Hanging in there. Mm -hmm. Vigorous answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's the sunshine that's done you in, huh? Well, how are things going in Kodiak? I mean, we're we're still in the waiting period. Or, or, or what are we seeing? So so far, we haven't seen any positive cases, which is giving uh, the uh, hospital and the medical staff a chance to. Um, look ahead and prepare um, so every day allows us to be one step further on when we get our first case um, and you know if we have more than one case so. let's just get down to the nuts and bolts what's the possible what's the probability of it actually coming here Elsa I don't know. I mean, I think that if we continue to <clears throat> stay home and keep away from everybody, that's great. Um, it may lower our possibility, but it seems like it's hitting just about everybody. You know, I don't know that we would, could consider ourselves immune from this coming here. Yeah, so, and this is Elise Pletnikoff. Um, we've had very low testing rates due to a low number of testing kits available to us in the outpatient facilities. And we have more tests available, and I think with higher testing rates, there's a good chance that we'll see some positive results. Um, I think there's a good chance that COVID will come to Kodiak, but with our good social distancing, mm -hmm. we hopefully will be able to eliminate or minimize spread in our community. I have to say that when you work a case and we have to do the contact, you know, find out who people have been near, et cetera, et cetera. It's really nice when you call somebody up and they say, well, the only people I've been to near are like three people or two people. Um, so that staying home and staying away from people is really important. Okay. So best case scenario, if a case gets here, how, how much of it, if we still practice the best practices we practice, how many people potentially get in in get infected well is that a good question it's hard to complicated say. Yeah. um yeah. 
So if we have somebody who's positive, and I and I agree with Dr. Platnikoff, I think it's we will see mm -hmm. people who are positive. Hopefully, it's a slow process which allows us to um, take care of those patients um, on a slow basis rather than being just hit with a tidal wave of patients. And I think people are doing a really good job of social distancing um, and, and slowing that down. Once we see more, uh, once we do more testing, we'll probably pick up the positive cases. Um, and then how we treat those individuals will be based upon how their symptoms are. So what's changing at, what's changing at Cano? Are, are, are has anything changed in the last two weeks? Quite a bit's changed in the last two weeks. We have moved to having a respiratory clinic and a non-respiratory clinic. So Mill Bay Health Center, which is our second clinic, is now just a site for patients with infectious respiratory disease. And Canna, Maine is a site for all of our other patients, hoping to keep patients um, safe and, and not infected by uh, people that may or may not have respiratory symptoms. We have changed our inpatient physician call system, so now we have a physician that's on call for respiratory patients and a physician that's on call for anyone else, um, so that our vulnerable elders that are in the hospital and our pregnant moms and our newborns are not exposed to a provider that's been caring for respiratory patients. Like I mentioned a bit ago, we are getting increased numbers of tests and increased availability of um, ability to test our patients, and that's a great thing for population health for understanding when and how COVID spreads when it comes here. So, um, Elise, this is uh, Steve. On the um, there's been some talk about the new um, testing kits, the ID Now, which is yeah. more of a rapid test. And are you, um, through the Indian Health Service, are you guys going to be able to get some of those uh, testing units? That's a great we, question. Where, where we can actually perform that test in Kodiak. Because currently, any tests that are collected are sent either to the state of Alaska or um, to two outside labs, um, Quest or LabCorp. Um, so hopefully we can get or receive testing units where we can perform that here in Kodiak, not only um, do it on in, in Kodiak, but rapidly. So um, are you guys um, in the pipeline for that? Uh, we are. So we anticipate getting access to rapid testing units um, and hopefully having them working as early as next week, early next week. And will you be using those um, units at the Mill Bay Clinic or at the tent site? And then are those... You know, can I send one of my Providence patients over there to be tested? We anticipate there being a rapid testing unit at the tent site. And what those tests are is it's a nasal pharyngeal swab, so it's the swab that goes into the nose, and it tests, it's a molecular test for the RNA of the virus. So it does not rely on the patient having created antibodies to coronavirus. It just relies on coronavirus being present in the nasopharyngeal secretions of the patient. So, and it's a very accurate test, and it come, the results come back in five to 13 minutes. So, and that should be at the test site hopefully by next week. And how many people can you test with that? That remains unknown, and so it looks like we're going to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 tests to start, and then we'll go from there. There's been a lot of advancements and a lot of talk about different types of tests and what's accurate and what's wor worthwhile. So 
can can you explain what we have already here and what the difference is what kind of advantage this the rapid test would give us over what we're using currently so elsa do you want to that well, I mean, the rapid tests are great. And of course, each one then takes, you know, time to collect the specimen. And then it takes, you're saying like 13 minutes. You're looking at probably half an hour, an hour altogether, maybe for the whole um, thing. But those are one at a time. And so when you look at the labs can do 300 at a time. So, you know, I don't know that we're going to ever get enough cartridges and enough to be able to do all the testing we want to do through that. But especially those people that are the most at risk or symptomatic, we, I think we'll certainly be able to do that way. And of course, it'll be up to Canon as they screen people to see how many, how much they have. Okay. All tests will continue to be by doctor order, and so the physicians from each facility will continue to decide if a patient's appropriate for testing or not. Okay. And then... We will still have the send-out tests available, so mm -hmm. it'll be up to the patient and the provider to discuss what makes the most sense if a rapid test is indicated for that person or if the state test that goes to the state lab is more appropriate. And I think what Dr. Pletnikoff points out is we're still in that limited resource um, mm -hmm. phase, so we can't just have everybody line up and go, I want to be tested. It, that would be ideal. I mean, we would love that to everybody be able to line up for a rapid test. And, and what I see is using this rapid test for those patients who are more symptomatic and we're trying mm -hmm. to decide, do we admit them to the hospital? Do we admit them to an alternate care site? Uh, and so I think at this point with only a few tests available initially, we have to still um, utilize our current system, send out tests, and um, as Dr. Pletnikoff said, uh, based upon a physician order, so ideally we'll be able to test everybody, but I don't see that happening um, in the very short time. The other point is too is, you know, it's great to catch those asymptomatic <laughs> cases, but when some people don't have symptoms yet, sometimes they could test negative at noon, but they may have may be testing positive by eight that night when the viral load's high enough to be detected. So just testing everybody in the whole community doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily make sure everybody's COVID-free. Right. So, yeah, there's that piece of it. Well, let's go a little bit into the extra load this is putting on each of you to try and keep up. I mean, you're, you're, you're busy people already but now you're having to deal with the learning curve that's involved with this because everything's changing all the time how are you getting the information how, how do you find the time and where do you go to keep yourself updated on the latest advances and how we can fight it at the local level i know for myself um, i use the uh, state websites there with the department of health services and Ann zinc gives uh, updates providence system also has a um, update through their website so we can keep abreast of what's happening um, and then you kind of have to pick and choose you can be overwhelmed with all of your colleagues sending you 15 different YouTube videos or links um, and, and you I rely on everybody to sort through and go hey this one's really good because I don't think any one of us can sort through all of that information and so if um, one of my colleagues has goes hey this is a great idea you want to look at it, um, and that's how we're all sorting through the information. Um, how about Akana? 
The amount of new learning going on is um, is a lot right now, and that is a really important part of our jobs. And our, all of our medical staff at Canna has been very engaged in keeping updated with COVID. Part of my job as the uh, leader of our medical team is to make sure that I collect data and then end information and distribute it to the medical team members every day to keep us all updated. And that's been a really interesting and very busy but interesting part of my job. And then I get my information from the CDC, from the state site. ANMC has conferences with us at least a couple times a week to keep us updated and sends me an email or sends us an email daily to keep us updated on their system. And then I have an infectious disease colleague I talk to every evening about cases in Anchorage. Elsa, what are you? Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. We're all looking at all these sites. You know, CDC, John Hopkins has a super good site. Um, We talk with our state people many times a day about different things. It's evolving so quickly, too, that every day new information is out there. Um, They're doing great echoes with providers across the state um, once a week. They're doing a perinatal one Thursday. They're doing, you know, so they're really pushing out a lot of information. Situation awareness is twice a week through epidemiology. So there's a lot of really good stuff out there. Okay. Now, for the <clears throat> the testing that's available, there there's the rapid test. There's the test that we're currently doing. I've heard the term point of care test. What is that? So that's basically what she's talking about, the Abbott ID now testing is point of care. So you're actually running the test where somebody is. The other ones are shipped off, so they're not point of I care. I gotcha. so, Yeah. So a good analogy of that would be is for um, a diabetic checks their blood sugar, mm-hmm. finger stick, looks. that's a point of care test. So it's done right then and there. Mm-hmm. I heard a... Uh, a the garlic test. <laughs> no? Is that for social distancing? <laughs> yeah. The more you eat, the less? <laughs> Good point. No, I mean, uh, uh, I, I heard a doctor pitching that the fact that the first thing that goes if you actually have COVID mm-hmm. is your sense of smell. And if you stick okay. your nose in a jar of garlic and you can't smell it anymore, you probably need to isolate yourself. Oh, that's a small percentage of the folk that become positive. Yeah. So I'm not quite sure you could rely on that. No, I well, th- <laughs> this is an Ask the Doctor show, <laughs> so I figured here I'd ask you. So that's been talked about as one of the initial symptoms before you um, become more ill with fevers and cough, respiratory things, is you lose your sense of smell. I. We haven't seen it yet. Uh, it's a small percentage, I think. It's out there in the literature, but it's... Um, Okay. So at Canna and and through ANMC, we've really expanded our screening tech criteria for patients that we are um, concerned that may have uh, infectious respiratory disease or COVID-19, and uh, acute or sort of a sudden change in taste or smell is one of our screening criteria. It is a minority of patients, but it certainly is an indicator of potential COVID disease, um, as is new diarrhea or um, or the symptoms that we've all been hearing about. Mm. Um some specific questions about testing. Um, we don't have any tests. We don't have any positive tests in Kodiak yet. How long would it take the public to get informed if there is a positive test in Kodiak? So I can speak to that a little bit. So the way it works is when there is a positive test, the lab 
immediately notifies ep the, our Department of Epidemiology at the state. And the state then, and they also notify their providers. Um, we like to let the providers have a little bit of time to talk to those people first before we call them up, but we give them, you know, half an hour or something, and then we start calling people and talking to them. So in Kodiak, we have it set up that if we get a positive case here in Kodiak, we will be notifying the EOC right away, and Francis knows that, and he will immediately roll it out to let the community know. So very quickly, people will know. Okay. And and there's there's been this long chat on the Internet about um, where numbers are counted from. Do you want to comment a little bit about that? Um, specifically, people were saying if, if you're from another region, you may be counted as a part of this region, or if you're, you know, there, there, there's a lot of uh, back and forth going about, you know, exactly what that means and why people are counted in a certain place. So that all has to do with the epidemiology and where they want to put things. And so, you know, it, it's just like our first case in Alaska. You know, we knew about it. It came up. Our, it was an Alaskan resident who was in Seattle and got sick and unfortunately passed away. But that was counted in a as an Alaska case. But we all knew that he was in Seattle. So, yes, it may be in the final epidemiological numbers that that person may be credited to another area, but we would still know about it as a local case. Okay. Um. So I know one of the questions has been, what about the Coast Guard? And, and currently mm -hmm. the Coast Guard um, care providers there will, uh, if they have a um, one of their personnel who they feel like should be tested, they'll contact um, either uh, Kodak Community Health Center or uh, CANA to arrange to have them tested through the um, testing uh, center of the test site over at East. Okay, so the rumors that there are cases on the Coast Guard base are, are, are not not factual. Uh, we're not aware of any cases. Okay. The Coast Guard and the military all in all have been really good about doing their quarantining. And so I think that's where a lot of that comes from. You know, if they have anybody transfer in or make any movements, they are right on top of making sure that they're quarantined. But any, just like at J-Bear in Anchorage, you know, um, epidemiology knew about all those cases. Public health worked them. They landed up doing their own monitoring, but it was still basically counted as a case and, they, and the state knows about it. Okay. Um. I want to talk to you a little bit about symptomatic contact, asymptomatic contact. Um, there's a lot of questions about proximity to somebody who has the has the virus, and how how easily it gets transmitted from person to person if someone's symptomatic versus asymptomatic. So. I think the first thing is if somebody's symptomatic, it, you know, we still have to practice our social distancing. You need to be six feet away. Uh, currently, uh, and we're all wearing masks here um, in the uh, studio, but the state has recommended um, that anybody who basically goes out in public should have a mask. Even if it's a cloth mask, it keeps your secretions from going out in a huge cloud to other people, does it protect you as a, in a cloth mask from somebody who is symptomatic? It's not the greatest defense, but it's the first line of defense. 
Okay, um, here's a follow-up question okay. to that. So this question says, I'm confused about masks. Do you need to use one um, and then do bandanas or make mm -hmm. shift masks help? So uh, I think the current recommendations from the state of Alaska is that anybody who's out in public should use a mask, even if it's the for the general public who's not symptomatic, the cloth mask. Um, Bandana is probably not as good because it's hard to seal it underneath, but there are several community members who are making uh, masks um, and uh, giving those out. So I, I would love to go anywhere in Kodiak and see somebody wearing a mask. Um, so yes, you should wear a mask. And it's, a mask does two things. It reminds you that this coronavirus is real, that I need to keep my distance from somebody at the store, at the post office. And it helps to remind you not to touch your face yeah which you know i can't emphasize about how important it is to wash your hands sanitize your hands repeatedly we're creatures who like to touch our face move our glasses so the mask not only protects you from aerosolizing as easily but it also reminds you not to touch your face okay are, are you seeing numbers in Kodiak start to increase now with more people practicing good behavior and wearing masks? I think it depends on where you go. I mean, some places, some people have been really good about it and a lot of others are not as good. Um, hopefully, you know, it's like anything else we do in medicine. It's like you're hoping that those, the 90% that do it are going to help protect those that don't do it. Um, so. I've had patients come into the clinic uh, wearing their own cloth masks, and mm -hmm. I think that's a great way to help keep the community safe. We're all suffering a little with the social distancing um, thing that we're doing, and another great thing that we can do for the community is to keep everyone else safe. Yeah. And, and just because you're wearing a mask, though, doesn't mean that you are protected totally. You know, you still need to do that distancing, be six feet away from people and other stuff. It's not like it's a, um, it makes you... Yeah, it's a shield, right? right. Just it's, another step. It's the first line of defense. And then if we begin to see or treat a symptomatic patient, mm -hmm. the, the care providers then step up their masking to the N95s, which we talked about before. Or if we really are in the situation of dealing with a patient who, um, you know, say we are to the point where we might put them on a ventilator, um, and that's an aerosolizing procedure, the care providers are going to be in a full protective um, PPE with the, uh, usually with the PAPR device, the airflow filtering device as well. So it's a, it's a gradual, but I think the masks, um, as Dr. Platnikoff said, they're a great first line, and they remind us that um, it helps other people know that we're serious about it. And it really just needs to be a face covering, a cloth yeah. face covering. So, you know, you can pull, if you have a scarf and you pull that up over your face, that'll work. Or just, you know, use what you have around. You don't have to have a specifically specifically manufactured mask. Okay, but we, we didn't get to the, the, the question. The basic question was, okay, if somebody is symptomatic and somebody is shedding virus, I mean, how much of a possibility is it that, you standing next to them is going to get you infected too. 
I think, it, well, first off, if you're in the same household with that individual yeah. and, and in close contact uh, within six feet, your chances are much higher. Um, and then we have to consider that if you're touching your face, it's spread by droplet, and which involves touching your hands or face and eyes. Um, if you're out in public and somebody is turns out to be symptomatic and you're six feet away and you're wearing a mask and they're wearing a mask you've cut down that mode of transmission considerably is there a um, perfect scenario and that's just to stay away from them I mean how nasty is this stuff you know in the, in terms of it being able to get into everybody I mean are there are, are there certain people that would not get the virus even if they had contact with it you know i don't know that we know that we know that there are people that are definitely more um you know their immune systems may be lower they're not as healthy um they get a, a more of a virus at one time um you know than other people but i don't think you know th this is more transmissible than the flu you know the flu is like one and a half people you get would infect if you were near them this is a you know like two and a half times you know so it is more transmissible than flu um, but so with your question with people standing next to each other if the person that's symptomatic does not have a mask on and then they cough on the grocery cart handle and then you touch it and even if you have a mask on if you go to adjust your mask and you get it on you then you're going to get sick so that's the point of everybody kind of covering their faces to hopefully keep those droplets with them and not sharing them out with everybody else. I, I, that led into the one of the most frequent questions we get is how do I, besides a mask and distancing, is there anything I can do personally to protect myself? Is there, um, you know, is, is there a vitamin? Is there a quick fix? Is there, you know, a better diet? Is there, is there something you can put in yourself to keep this away from you? There's really no known ways to prevent it as far as vitamins or supplements or anything like that. But the more we can do just to keep ourselves healthy and keep our immune systems as robust as they can be makes sense to keep us healthy. So eat healthy, stay active. And really the most important part is avoiding exposure to the virus because any of us that get exposed can become infected. Wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, disinfect surfaces. So what do we know now about the changing therapeutics of this? I, I, I know that, you know, down the long run, they're still talking, they're going to be able to get a, a vaccine maybe in 12 months, maybe 18 months. But in the interim, the only thing that we really can do is improve the medical care to keep somebody, keep the majority of the population alive long enough um, till the vaccine's available, right? I mean, so w what kind of things do we need to do to treat patients differently um, to, to keep the mortality down, I guess? So I think where you're going with this, Mike, so the first thing when we have a patient who needs um, more advanced care is oxygen therapy. We're finding that if we can do high concentration oxygen, um, we might keep some of those individuals off of the ventilator. 
once you get to the ventilator stage, you're requiring very intensive medical care. You, you know, your blood pressure may need to be controlled with medications. And so we're trying to keep people from that stage if we can. We're finding, uh, interestingly, that we have to change our thought process from back in the days of sepsis where somebody had potentially an overwhelming bacterial infection and one of our treatments was to um, begin um, a lot of IV fluids very quickly. We're finding with these patients that that actually makes them into more um, respiratory compromise. Their lungs can't handle that. So we've changed that to we're finding we keep these patients actually a little bit on what we call the dry side. Um, Antibiotic-wise, there is no antibiotic for a virus of this sort. The, some of the questions that have been in the news about hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, some antivirals, remdesivir, which was developed for Ebola, there's ongoing studies on that. I don't think that we have a definitive answer yet, and we're all looking for the quickest cure. Um, but there are, they're having more scientific studies to, to try and give us the information as care providers. Uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine uh, was used for, is used for lupus patients. It is not without side effects um, on the heart. And so it has a, what we call a narrow therapeutic window. So I don't want, we have to be careful of just going, oh, we're going to give everybody this. We can actually, the cure could be worse than the, the disease. So we have to rely on those scientific studies, which take time. Yeah. Um, and then in regards to a vaccine, that's a long process. And, and mm -hmm. you're right, it could take a year to year and a half to get a vaccine for this particular COVID virus. Uh, so in the meantime, it's keeping our distance from everybody. Um, for the most part, treatment seems to be, since it's not going to be if you contract the virus, you're going to go home and you're going to sweat it out like the flu, and it's going to be seven days of brutality or more, right? Um, but for those unlucky enough to have serious cases of it and they're going to require hospitalization, then you, the treatment is 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 what i mean it, it, what are we really doing to somebody before we decide boy they are so bad we have to put them on a ventilator because we've heard so much about ventilators being you know there's a shortage of them and we need them because that's going to save more people but it seems to me like the numbers are, are sort of showing that if you get to the ventilator stage your chances aren't too good well with any disease process the further down you go the severity uh, which includes being on a ventilator, uh, your survivability is also goes down. So I think with the coronavirus patients who are respiratory patients, the, the first line is to improve the oxygenation in their lungs. And if we can do that without putting them on a ventilator, um, that's the first um, step in that. And we're finding a lot of patients that may be sufficient. So if you contact, become symptomatic with a virus, the majority of people um, probably can wait it out at home. 
there will be a few individuals that move into what we call the mild case that they may need some supplemental oxygen, just a little bit of extra oxygen, maybe some IV fluids. That's that's um, those are the people that would go into your tent, no, right? So, so let to me Northstar. so to Northstar. Yeah, to Northstar. So. Okay. Let me go back to currently we have everybody seen the tent set up outside the hospital and that's a screening tent. So people who present to the hospital and our staff are screened there. If they have respiratory symptoms, we're going to, uh, and they're not critical right at that point, we're going to have them go back into their car and then somebody will come out and ideally we'll have a rapid test. Uh, but Currently, we'll come out, we'll check them and decide whether they need to come into the emergency department or they can go back home. Okay. And, and realize we don't have a test where we can do it immediately, the point of care test that Dr. Poletnikoff was talking about. If we have a person who um, sprained their ankle and they are negative in the screening they will go through the usual process to the emergency room they'll go to the registration desk be registered and come in to what everybody knows as the regular emergency room doors if we have somebody who presents either by ambulance or by screening here we go oh, this person's in needs more aggressive care we're going to and and they are potentially infectious we will take them in through the ambulance bay doors to our room one, um, which has negative pressure, evaluate them and, and decide what type of care we need. If that person um, is critically ill, then we're gonna move them up to um, what, room 19, which is a negative pressure room. We can set that up for ICU. And, and should they need um, intubation, it would be done at that point, placed on a ventilator. All this um, is in preparation to, at this point, transferring that patient up to Anchorage to the tertiary care hospitals for more intensive care. I want to reassure um, everybody that if we have a patient like that and they're not, we would intubate them up on the second floor, but we would put a mask on them transferring them up. That protects the staff, the hallway. Um, and then the stretcher and everything is cleaned as we would normally do. Um, I think um, the other thing that Dr. Pletnikoff pointed out was um, both clinics have physicians for uh, potentially infectious patients and non-infectious on the medical and OB side. The hospital has set up a room 23, which is a negative pressure OB room for somebody who would, a laboring mom would be infectious. And that provider physician provider and nurse providers would be relegated to that. Um, so in area. other words, if you're a, a COVID staff person, doc person, you stay that way now? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, so that's kind of the hospital flow. And then um, back to your question about the alternate care site, which is at North Star, and that was set up through the Emergency Service uh, Council. That is... Um, a place for right now COVID positive patients. So I want to emphasize we don't have any positive patients at this point. But when we do have, and that individual meets what's considered the mild category, so they need some supplemental oxygen, um, 
then they would be admitted to that alternate care site with the goal that we don't overwhelm the main hospital with patients who just need some extra oxygen but not um, aggressive Inter intervention. Okay. And, and they can't do it at home. And so just, just a, um, a negative pressure room as a room, it's kind of a confusing yeah. term for people. It's like a room where that's ventilated to the outside so the air doesn't circulate in the right. Right. area yeah. that it is. So that's kind of what that means. Now, it, it seems to me like um, if, if you have respiratory illness of some variety, you're, you're going to be lumped in with the COVID category, aren't you? I mean, we have respiratory people we have respiratory problems that aren't COVID related and, and it's flu season still, right? So, yeah. and don't forget the Kodak crud. So mm -hmm. all, but right now we Pollock. have to, uh, <laughs> yeah. we have to assume that anybody with respiratory issues is what they would call a PUI person under in investigation. I mean, I think we would be remiss for our patients and the community if we did not make the assumption that they're potentially COVID positive until we can prove otherwise. And, and you're exactly right. So that's where the rapid testing will help sort out whose respiratory issues may be related to their asthma or the flu rather than COVID-19. It's separated. In, in, yeah. in, in Canada, in the outpatient clinic, we understand that we're going to have people without COVID that we're seeing in our respiratory clinic. And so what we're doing is we're doing very careful um, personal protective equipment for the providers. And that's largely to keep the patient safe as well. And so those patients are being rotated through three negative pressure rooms. They're being carefully cleaned between patients. Um, so we want to be really careful that our patients don't transmit any potential infection to each other. Yeah. Um, so we have, you know, question. People are nervous if they get the cold nowadays, and, and they're they're nervous about whether they got something. Um, how do you alleviate the those concerns for somebody? You know, is, is it something that you're seeing, or are people really staying away from medical facilities now because they? I mean, you said there was a serious drop off in the amount of people going into um, the ER. So I, I think from the emergency room standpoint, we're actually seeing we're seeing less patients who um, have maybe cold symptoms, flu-like symptoms that they couldn't get into their clinics. The clinics are doing a great job of um, running the first line of defense there. So it's actually a, a much more efficient system. Um, and I can't comment from the clinic side except that I know that both are doing a great job of help and sort out um, individuals before they ever hit the emergency room. And my understanding and is that both clinics are doing um, telehealth visits, and, and Dr. Plotnikoff, you can probably comment more on that. But. That, is, that is accurate. Both of us, both clinics are CHC and uh, CANA. Um, we have a, an aggressive screen done by the front desk, the person that patients call, or when they walk in, that screens for anyone that could be a, have a respiratory have respiratory symptoms, and then an RN has a we have a special RN triage line and person in the clinic um, just to help patients figure out the best way they can get care. And so a lot of our respiratory patients we're seeing over the phone or by telehealth over the computer. 
So also, I think that to differentiate a little bit for people, just when you have a cold, you don't usually get a fever. You know, you don't usually have super shortness of breath. I mean, those are more defining symptoms. Good. That's good to know. Um, Got a lot of questions about quarantine issues, Um, in particular in regards to the salmon season in the grocery store and in regard to the airport and how we can keep ourselves as a safe city. Um, There are many people questioning um, why people aren't being tested coming out of the airplanes. I would love to be able to test everybody who came into Kodiak, but that would mean that we, you know, as we talked earlier with the rapid testing um, ability, and we just don't have that. So I think we still have to, and I can't overemphasize the social distancing, keeping six feet away, wash your hands. Um, the uh, airport, we still have to have essential services. So I, I'm not in a good position to comment about whether we should shut the airport down or not. Well, the when the cannery folks were in yesterday, they've set up all these security protocols for their employees coming into work and... Um, for people not visiting the plants and how they deal with the fishermen hitting the dock. But we do something different at the airport that doesn't necessarily make sense. Well, everybody's supposed to, when they come in on the airport, they're supposed to fill out that form that's saying where they will be quarantining themselves. And that goes to the EOC so that they can keep a little bit of a track of that. I know that the EOC has been working really hard and now there's notifications on all the docks and all the fishermen knowing that they need to quarantine their crews that are coming in. I mean, they're still critical infrastructure so they could work, but maybe they're working like way away from everybody else or keeping away from each other, doing what they need to do. But they know they still have to be that two week quarantine and um, just casual conversations I've heard. I think they're pretty aware of that. And hopefully that people that are needing to bring people in for work know they have to be quarantined those two weeks before they can start their jobs and you're going to have to bring somebody in like a specialist maybe there's a piece of equipment at the hospital that needs fixing and there's nobody in town that can fix it they're going to have to bring somebody in to to do that but that means that they take all the precautions they can to you know in doing that piece there are pieces of critical infrastructure that we just that have to continue absolutely and and actually last week our cat scan was down and we don't have somebody on island who can fix that and so we had to bring somebody in and we have several other pieces of equipment and pieces of our infrastructure in the hospital that we have to keep running and so we definitely have to be able to get those service providers in here to to be able to keep things going at the hospital yeah we know that it's just they follow all the precautions they wear masks they're screened like all of our employees are and so we take every precaution with those folks coming in as well but it's very important that we can still keep the hospital running because those are things that their services we we uh, can't provide on the island to fix some of those things. And we have to keep the planes flying because that's like how we get our labs out. We had a couple of days where we didn't have planes and we couldn't get any labs off the island. So, you know, in our mail, and I mean, we have to keep things moving a little bit. Um, well, it's just that trade-off, you know, you have, mm-hmm. to, you have to try and be safe too. So from a medical point of view, I, I guess I was just asking, with the input that goes into the, the decisions that the emergency council makes, are, are the medical concerns um, being considered, you know? I can definitely mm-hmm. say that um, the, OS, the ESC, the Emergency Service Council, 
um, listens to us. One of our uh, staff, Amy Corder, is actually on that um, as a representative from the hospital, so she relays our concerns. You know, I think with the airport question, now that, it, so currently our only commercial air transport is going to be Alaska Airlines. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's been through Anchorage knows that you have to go through TSA. They've, I haven't traveled now for quite a while, but they have, their screening process is much more than the um, Raven flights. And, and I'm, Know, Raven provided a, a good service for us because they were able to bring people here, but you know they never had a screening process like TSA does. So I think we have a little bit better, better control of the respiratory issues through TSA screening than we do than we did with Raven. Um, I, you know, and again, even if you tested everybody that got off the plane, that person that gets off, may their viral load may not be high enough to pick it up, so they're still coming into the island. So that's just not always the, the perfect answer. Um, social behavior. There's a question about social behavior and how you should politely tell somebody to get out of your space. <laughs> <laughs> to ask the doctor <laughs> you know if 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 you're if you're in a common place you have to go someplace and 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 there's somebody there without a mask on and they're they're too close to you i mean what what's your what would you do i think i, I well i think it's a very good thing to very politely say hey can you keep your distance you know i appreciate um but keep keep back six feet because I want to protect you from me and me from you. And and the the key is politely. And hopefully you can step back. you can step back or step away too. You know. So. You twinkled your eyes. <laughs> for this is radio, but I had to share that. So the other the other day, one of the nurses pointed out we both had masks on. We're we're, we're at universal mask status here in the in the hospital and um, this nurse was giving me report and she would step forward so I could hear her and I stepped backwards and this went on for about 10 feet the tango we, we both realized and she said every time I got within your six foot space you step backwards and so I think we just have to develop that be aware of what six feet is and when people invade that space then you have to start stepping back and, and ask them to also respect that face. Right. Um, salmon season. Salmon season's coming up. Any advice for the people trying to quarantine crew or do things safely? Well, you know, if if a crew comes up, that what they're considering their 14-day quarantine. So if a, sh if a boat's coming up from Seattle, has the crew on it, and it takes them five days to get here, those five days are considered quarantine days because they're out at sea. Mm -hmm. When they get here, I mean, it's sort of like a household. So, you know, I mean, you're already within really close contact. So that, that whole boat, like a household, would hopefully quarantine their folk altogether. I know that some people that are bringing folk in, crew in from other places are quarantining them elsewhere, quarantining them at you know, a hotel or other, other places where they can be and be isolated and quarantined. So I know that they're working really hard with these 
you know, people to figure out answers for their, because we all know how the salmon boats are. You're right on top of each other. Yeah. Um, so. Well, part of the issue with, uh, if you <clears throat> go anywhere in Kodiak, there isn't a lot to do socially. You can't go to the movie theater. Um, there's no bars open. There's no restaurants open except you can you know, order out, ahead. Yeah. And so a lot of um, those social activities that we were all used to aren't available. So it, it, it kind of reminds you that, hey, this is serious. We need to keep our distance. So. So th that leads to my final question for today, which is how's the mental health aspect of this uh, for all of you and what you're dealing with? Um, Elise, you want to comment first? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, it's a uptick in the amount of work that we're doing and the amount of um, vigilance as far as keeping our staff safe and our patients safe and staying updated on, on it. Um, but I think that's part of um, part of what we accept as being the care providers in the community. And I know that with all of the extra stress and stuff, it's hard to take time out for yourself. We're probably all on, um, our stress level has gone up. It's You're having a lot more interactions with your staff though, aren't you? As far as I mean, it sounds like you're having a lot more meetings and you're you're doing a lot more briefings and because uh, you, you, you're dealing with a, an emergency, so you, everybody tends to try and collectively do things together. I mean, does that help sort of a the group mental health aspect of it? I think it does, and I think half of the stress for all of us is the uncertainty that every day we learn more about this virus, but just not knowing. That uncertainty factor is is certainly weighs on everybody, and and uh, I think Stephen Flora, who was here a couple of weeks ago from the the uh, uh, counseling center, said, you know, you have to take time out for yourself. Um, talking in a group definitely helps. Um, I, we had a med staff meeting this morning, which was all by call in, something entirely new because in the past we would all be in the same room which I think was very important. We could see each other, we could voice things as a staff, but we just did the first time call in. Um, we're all learning on that. But um, from the uh, mental health component, there's a uh, call in site for physicians across the United States that um, it's like ask a psychiatrist for colleagues issue. Um, we have our spiritual care at the uh, hospital and at the region level dealing with not only physician providers but nursing um, and healthcare providers across the board. How do we deal with all of this uh, stress? And I think getting outside, taking a walk six feet away from everybody else is never hurts. Snowball fight today. <laughs> Elsa, how are things at public health? I mean, how are you coping? definitely ramping up we are really busy i think every day my voice is just tired because every all day long i'm on meetings or talking to people and that's um it's it's very interesting and um it's great to be learning new things and be but it's exhausting too you know to keep things going i think that you're right steve's right you know you just need to take time for yourself and look at that spiritual piece or that other piece you know and you know, if there are new technology we have now with Zoom and with Web, some of those things we can actually see people still. And I think that's kind of a nice, it's a nice that we're at this place in technology with FaceTime and those things where we can actually see a face yeah. still, um, even when we're busy with our, our lives. 
Um, Gina? And, and I think it's important too, if, if you see someone that they really look like they need to take a break, that you really need to push them to take a break. So that's mm -hmm. one thing that we've been really intentional from our incident command is if we see leaders getting tired and weary with all that's going on that we've been um, kind of mandating, you know, you need to take tomorrow off because we need you fresh. We're in a marathon, mm -hmm. this isn't a sprint. Even though we feel like it's a sprint from the time you wake up in the morning until you know all hours of the night that you're still getting calls about the changes with everything that's going on with COVID, and you know just recognizing that individually people may not be able may not recognize that they need to take a time out, and so you know just having each other's backs is really really important. So, you know, there's. There's almost a tendency to say, boy, you know, you work so hard in preparation for something happen that you want it to happen almost. You know, I know that we don't want it to happen, but if, if, if it's going to happen, um, it, it, makes it, it makes it more critical for people in the population to then take it seriously, one, so maybe things start to change a little bit or people don't relax, um, but... The, the longer we can keep it away, the more information that we get, too, so we'll be better prepared when it eventually gets here. So it's just a struggle to last through the preparatory phase. Is, uh, th that, to me, would be the mentally challenging part of the whole thing. I think the one thing of, that we have going for us in Kodiak is that we all work so well together. You know, all of our clinics are working together. Our providers are so... No one person has to take 100% of that burden, you know, no one organization. And I think that's a really uh, a unique piece of, of Kodiak. I agree. And then yesterday, as we did our final walkthrough for the long-term care, or for the um, alternate okay. care site before we opened, even though we don't have patients there yet, we said, you know what, it would be amazing if we did all this and all we have to do is pack it up at the end of the day. We call it, we learned a lot and we had great teamwork and we would completely be okay with packing packing it all up at the end of this and saying thank goodness we never had to use it yeah well, I think one of the really good things about the delay in having COVID come here is that providers have gotten through the first wave of fear and um, concern about lack of knowledge and we've been learning about and preparing for this now for um, between four and six weeks. And so I think the provider team is feeling a lot more comfortable and prepared um, to see patients if and when they come in. Yeah. Uh, okay, finally, what phone number, if people have symptoms, who should they call again? And is it a free service? And in, in terms of payment, I mean, there's a lot of information out there about if you if you have COVID, how how is it going to get paid? Um, Elise, do you want to talk a little bit about how the FQHCs are are working sliding scales? Sure. So if a patient is a CANA patient or needs a provider and wants to talk with a CANA provider, the number here is 486-9870. Um, we are, and the Kodiak Community Health Center and CANA are both community health centers, and that means that when patients are seen, we um, we have them fill out paperwork to apply for what's called a financial sliding scale, and then take income into consideration and can slide fees down pretty low to try to provide care for anybody that needs it. 
Okay. Um, a general number, then, they would call that number? Uh, 486-9870 is the number to get a hold of a CANA provider, and that's the number that you can get a nurse anytime during the working day. Okay. And then for KCHC, that number is 481-5000. Now, there's a general number out of the ESC, too, that you call 211 for... General information. General information. Yeah. That's at a state level. Mm -hmm. Okay. But they have they have you know listings of like everywhere. There's even a math on the state website that shows every place where testing is available. And I made sure that Kodiak got on there because they didn't have us on there at all. You know, with our offsite testing and everything. Um, so. So would people call public health? I mean, if somebody can, didn't have a doctor, would they? They can call us and we can refer them on. I we guess. can help them. We can help them figure out where to go or what they need to do. Sure. Okay. Well, ask the doctor was uh, was kind of fun. Uh, I, I hope we get a lot of questions for next week, and I hope we are in the same place next week and still preparing. So thank you all for your time. I really appreciate you all taking time out of your busy days to come in and share this with the, the public. I think the public is really um, leery of what's going on, and they want information, and you're the best people to be able to provide it to people. So thanks. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for having us. Okay. Great. Thank you. Thank you.